0: This week on the Open Nesters podcast with Jim Fleckenstein.
1: Innate freedom to craft the relationship structure that works best for you, that meets your needs. And that may be a closed relationship, it may be an open relationship, it may be a network of friends like the TV show. Whatever it is that meets your needs, you have the right to have that You absolutely do. You don't have to fit into this cookie cutter.
0: Welcome to the Open Nesters podcast. I'm Tessa.
2: And I'm Amir. And we are the Open Nesters rather than empty nesters. How will you write act three of your life?
0: Together with wise guest experts, individuals and partners just like you, We will go on a journey and discover how rich this stage of life, Act 3, can be.
1: Having space for yourself and having space for your partner and encouraging that.
2: What's the best way to prepare yourself for opening a new door? It's to pause. This woman came down with two guys and she introduced them as her husband and her boyfriend. This is what I want. Life keeps on living.
1: Step into that.
0: This is a wonderful, insightful interview. We spoke with Jim in the midst of COVID, just so that you know, but he gave us such a great history and perspective of his relationships and partnerships, but really deepened knowledge for all of us, and I'm sure for you, because he's actually lectured for sex therapists, and he really, really has his stuff down.
2: And I believe that the audience will benefit tremendously from this interview, as well as Jim very precise definition of relationship, including how kink fits into all of this. So let's hear it from Jim.
0: Welcome, Jim, to the Open Nesters Podcast. I'm so happy that you are joining us today. It's been a busy, busy day for me, and, I'm so, and I don't mean to do anything, but, ex- but be excited, which I am, to, to just have all of what you want to give us today and all of our audience in the most genuine way you can. So welcome.
1: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I hope you have a big bucket. <laughs> We're going to yeah. Try to fill it as much as we can. So. Okay. Wonderful.
0: So tell us a little bit about your, your personal professional background and so that our audience knows why you're on our podcast.
1: Sure. I, I am a relationship educator, researcher, and coach. I help people who are struggling with challenges in their relationship to find ways to do better at it and get more satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment out of their relationship. Whatever the sticking points are, I help them find ways around it, even if they don't think they can. Um, So I've been doing this work in one form or another for over 20 years. Uh, I've published uh, research in sexuality and relationship therapy. I've spoken on uh, over a dozen sexuality professional conferences. Um, I've contributed to the International Encyclopedia of Sexuality. And I have another paper that is in press right now uh, from Archives of Sexual Behavior. So, and, And the interesting thing is, you know, uh, my degree is in mass communications and political science. I am not a uh, uh, sex therapist or a uh, philosophy PhD major.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But you've yeah, spoken for the that. American Association of Sexual Educators and Therapists (ASECT). You've spoken for them. You've actually done yes. their conferences. So that's so interesting.
1: Yes, I've done, done ASECT eight times, mm-hmm. and also for the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, uh, the Society for um, Scientific Study of Sexuality you know i just had the good fortune i networked with some really really smart people who really deep in this field and i've learned and taught myself a great deal and uh, and so now i want to share that knowledge that i've gained so so painfully over the decades with uh, many people and that's one of the reasons why i wrote my book which we'll talk about a little bit later but it's called love that works 38 awesome hacks for amazing relationships
2: right
0: Thank you. Perfect for us to introduce you that way. So you're also an open nester and you went through and had a 25-year long-term marriage that you're now in a different lifestyle that maybe you want to just talk about personally.
1: Yeah, I, I was uh, a very buttoned down, straight arrow, uh, mainstream America kind of guy. Uh, married very young. I was 20 and a, and a third years old when I got married um, and, uh, and was married for 25 years. And kind of uh, you know things things changed and, and we grew in different directions and our son was grown at that point off to college so you know classic empty nesters but because we started so young we were probably eight to ten years younger than your typical empty nester
2: right
1: but you know we we discovered that uh, you know things had changed enough for us that perhaps other avenues beckoned and so we had a very amicable divorce. And, and I moved on into other, other things. And one of the other things I discovered after, after getting out of my marriage was that monogamy was no longer, didn't hold any charm for me anymore, that I discovered and, and moved in certain circles with people who were consensually non-monogamous. And I had to teach myself how to do that and what that was all about. And so that was part of what my education was, was learning how to do that and what that was all about. And uh, and I've been living successfully non-monogamously now for 20 plus years.
2: And are you still in right. touch with your ex?
1: Yes. We are we have a very cordial relationship. We are Wonderful. always going to be co parent. She lives less than a mile from me with her new husband, her, her current husband, um, just by accident. That was his childhood home. And when his parents passed away of the three brothers, he inherited it. Um, so, you know, it's just uh, the That's world where is know. a small, small wonderful yeah and, uh, and so we stay in touch we send each other you know birthday cards and mothers and father's day cards and you know christmas cards and you co-parent um, so and we co-parent i mean our son's almost 40 now so <laughs> there's not a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> right uh, but, so looking cool at this at that, this
0: open nester stage is interesting for us to know that this obviously brings people to crossroads And so how, if you had to start from the very basic of what you've spoken to and help therapists determine or consider of looking at, at this option of consensual non-monogamy, how would you tell them to reflect to themselves first for, for a human to step into that for themselves first?
1: Well, the interesting thing is what, what put me in the, in the pathway of trying to teach professionals about non-monogamy was the fact that there was a tremendous amount of bias, negative bias. I had a very bad experience with a Johns Hopkins trained psychiatrist who insisted on pathologizing me and saying I was, I was busy reliving adolescent fantasies. And, and I knew he was wrong, but I couldn't prove it. And so that in part launched me on my effort to go find out what it took to prove it. And you can see part of it, your, your listeners can't see it, but you can. Uh, this is part of what I had to learn. And so my first
0: lots of books behind you,
1: lots of books. My first step was to take what I had learned and take it to the professionals and say, guys, you have to stop pathologizing people for this. This is a valid lifestyle choice for a lot of people. They thrive with it. They do well with it. And you need to open your hearts and open your heads and adopt a more balanced attitude toward it. And so My first thing was to kind of teach the therapists and counselors and educators to accept this as a valid choice for some, not for everyone, but I have a sneak gut suspicion that it's for a lot more people than you would first think. Uh, But nevertheless, it's not for everyone. There's a a hardcore people for whom it is absolutely not the appropriate thing. They don't have the skill set and they don't want to acquire the skill set. Okay, that's fine. Cool. And, and it's
0: interesting year. that they can be fluid and go in and out of that, what I think Esther Perel talks yes. about, monogamy and yes. non-monogamy. So we don't have to put as many labels on only being one thing, if I right. understand that correctly.
1: Exactly. You, you know, you you respond. I mean, every relationship is a new relationship. And Esther's really, uh, really uh, very brilliant person. And one of the things that she talks about is that You know, all right, say, for example, you have an infidelity situation. uh, And so it's like, all right, you're going to you're going to have another marriage. It's a a new marriage after this. Do you want to have that second marriage now with the same person? Um, Or even this other major life transitions. Are you going to have a second or third or fourth marriage with that same person who has changed? You have changed. They have changed. Your life circumstances have changed. The things that were appropriate to you when you were 18 or 20 or 24 and got married for life and till death do us Yeah, might not fit so well at 35 or 45 or 65. Um, So there are a lot of reasons why you're going to, to have to start over. So, you know, first thing is stop. Take stock of where you are. Look at what is working well for you. Look at what's not working well for you and then say okay how do i go from where i am to where i might like to be and then that begins the journey of self education and from that journey of self education comes the opportunity to communicate what you've learned and what you're feeling to your partner and well, again well, so not much. always easy you know not always simple but essential i mean yes. one of the things in my book rests a lot is the duty to honesty the duty to be truthful and forthright in a tactful, gentle way with your partner. You owe that duty of honesty to your partner. Even if it's something they perhaps would rather not hear, um, that's for them to manage. Your job is not to manage their reaction, it's not to think their thoughts, it's to be honest and straightforward and truthful about where you are and what you're thinking and what you're feeling And then work with them to process that.
0: And that doesn't mean if somebody thinks, you know, they want to do somebody, it becomes a very sexual aggressive act that they have to tell everyone, I just want to do her, I want to do her. Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes people can exaggerate that particular thing you're saying, and I just want to hone in on what we need to talk about is our feelings about what we want to do for ourselves, how we want to feel, how we want to create the lives we want by asking for our emotional and sexual needs and and sometimes one person can or cannot fulfill yeah. it i mean that's kind of where i'm going with yeah. this
2: you have to take inventory of, of of your of your thoughts whatever it is wherever you are at this particular stage you analyze it you understand uh, your status and you understand what's working for you or not and by doing so you can determine if the next step that you're exploring and researching is really for you and that is, I think, uh, a step that a lot of our audience can take if they want to perhaps open their relationship, consider it, understand it. The first step is to do the research. Would you agree with that? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Well said. I mean, would you like to co-author a book with me? <laughs> uh, no, but exactly. I, I, actually, I just
2: repeated what you said and just summarized it in a different way. But
1: yeah. No, but it, it, excellent. You know, whether it's opening your relationship, which is obviously a biggie for a lot of people, or whether it's downsizing to a smaller home, or whether it's moving to a new location, or whether it's starting a second or third career. Any of those things require that same fundamental stop. Listen to that small, quiet voice in your head that says, hey, I want to do something different. I want to be something different. I want the next act of my life to be different in some way. What does that look like? What does that feel like? Step into that. Where does that lead me? Where where does that take me? Do I want to have an open relationship? Do I want to move to Chicago? What do I want to do with myself? Because for many people, especially in relationships, we default. We default to socially prescribed things that may or may not fit us. They may or may not fit us when you're 20. They sure as hell may not fit us when we're 40 or 60. And yet we default. Why? Because we don't know anything else what other way is there yeah. to be right it's a, this it's, it's, our, upbringing. Yeah. it's our upbringing yeah
2: it's our upbringing it's our environment it's our social uh religion spheres everything that this makes sense you
0: sense you of security are. exactly yeah.
1: and, and the bad news is you know here spoiler alert what we think of is this immutable set of relationship rules around marriage and 2.5 children in a white picket fence is probably no more than 70 years old in the United States. What we think of as the the nuclear family, the the marriage and kids and and white picket fence, the the norm that we think of is actually nothing more than a post-World War II uh, phenomenon. It is part of an effort by Madison Avenue and a lot of other influential folks to maximize consumerism by creating levittown and all these nuclear families that needed more washers and dryers and cars and kitchen appliances is
2: there a new is there a new is there a new, for, is there a new norm is there a new standard I think, that replaces that
1: i think we are seeing more self actualization it is a generational effect I'm a baby boomer, you're baby boomers, your audience is largely composed of baby boomers. So we were shaped by that 50s and 60s mindset, that post-World War II mindset. By definition, our parents were World War II veterans and of that era. But their parents, you know, people who were growing, who were grown adults in the 20s and during the Great Depression, there was a very, very different notion of what marriage and family looked like in the great depression and the era that immediately followed up to up through world war ii we had multi-generational families living together we had a lot of different things much larger families cousins and uncles and aunts living together with the family Uh, it looked very different so mom, we could dad, depend
0: we th- could depend on one another as far as our needs and then and and then all of a sudden we've isolated and I mean talk about now during covid and during and how this world of technology which obviously has its benefits has now insulated us and isolated us and we don't have the, and we've spread out as far as this suburban school Crawl, sprawl, whatever they call it, and here we don't have little communities that hold each other and can love each other in different ways, regardless of the sexuality. So I think what you're what you're helping us understand is, and that people don't always like to look at, is that yes, this industrial resolution changed everything. One of the one of most wonderful books I've ever read is Sex at Dawn to look at the whole history of our of our sexuality, but not just sexuality, but our, our how we actually. It is a lot about sexuality, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead. That the love part first, taking care of emotional needs, and then looking back and knowing that this is a recent phenomenon, both of these things, depending on yeah. only one another, thinking we can be everything for each other. Right. How is that
1: possible? Yes. So, so it, you know, the, the difference is to be able to, to, to reach out and grasp for yourself the innate freedom. To craft the relationship structure that works best for you that meets your needs and that may be a closed relationship it may be an open relationship it may be a network of friends like the tv show whatever it is that meets your needs you have the right to have that you absolutely do you don't have to fit into this cookie cutter that was imposed upon you and i think the younger generations are adopting that norm but people our age you know we still divorce rates are declining overall but not among the boomers the so-called gray divorce uh phenomenon is very real and so it's like our generation is still coming to terms with what we want to be when we grow up right. and the youngest of us are in their early 60s um so mm-hmm. you know, we're, 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 we're getting there yeah but it's a, a, but you have a right to that. You have a right to be happy, by God. and I mean, not in the sense that the world owes you happiness. You know, the the Constitution promises you the freedom to pursue it. Right. But you have to take that freedom to pursue it and pursue it, and not be lazy it.
2: about it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, so now, enough.
2: yeah. So, so now, take me through the process that you went through. You got separated. You now uh, you, you've been an, an open nester or slash empty nester. Uh, for a while take me through the process for you to go from being an open nester to the fact that you realize that uh, monogamy is not for you you've done through the research obviously so take me through that process if you don't mind to where yeah, you are I, today I,
1: I, sure i got involved you know when, when it was okay to do so i got involved with a woman on the internet yay internet uh who lived on the opposite coast and she was a bit of a free spirit. She had just left a, an abusive marriage of her, her own. Her husband literally tried to kill her. The only thing that stopped him was her her dog, a big wolf, half wolf dog who put him down and kept him from harming her. But she moved from Phoenix to Oregon and began a new life for herself. And we connected on the internet. And so I was talking to her and I said, well, you know, you know, you sound interesting. Let's talk. So we talked and talked and we grew close. And she says, I want to make you understand, Jim, I am not ready for an exclusive relationship. And I said, what? You know, and she said, no, I'm not. You know, just came out of a relationship, not ready for an exclusive relationship. I care about you. Uh, I think I would like to maybe be with you, but I'm not going to be exclusive to you. And so you have to be at peace with that. And I was shocked. shocked. You were shocked. Yeah because sure. it's like I Brooke. don't know if I can do that but okay yeah let me see what I can do um, Broke so, all your paradigms
2: yeah.
1: yeah that that I started doing the research and I discovered that there was a word for this it's called polyamory it was a word she didn't even know and uh and and there were books about it and there were chat rooms about it and an organization a supports So, wow this is awesome let me go let me go learn this stuff and so i went into the chat room for the loving more organization which is a national polyamory organization and met in that chat room one of the doyens of that chat room is a person who is my current life partner but you know she was just helping me learn way back then and uh Ultimately, you know, I, I tried to share what I knew, what I had learned with this woman from Oregon, and, and she was receptive to the idea. But, you know, a bi-coastal relationship and all the, the struggle associated with that, it ultimately didn't work out. Again, we're still friends. Right. We're still Facebook friends. Um, but it was like, wow, this, this just kind of opened my eyes. Yeah, and so, so the deeper I dug, and the more research I did, the, the more it seemed to fit me.
2: Right, and you you made your decision based on the research, based on understanding, based on speaking to people, and you figured out that it's good for you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I could have always backed away, you know, if I tried it and it didn't work for me. Right. You know, if if I couldn't manage it, but I tried it and I could manage it. And so I ended up helping to start a local support group here in the D.C. metro area for people of polyamorous inclination and uh, served on its initial board and then was an early chairman of the board. And we created one of the largest polyamory support groups in the country at the time. And uh, so I got to meet more people and I got to to be a resource. I was doing all the intake work, all the people who wanted to join the organization. They had to go through an orientation and do some intake to make sure, you know, we're trying to weed out the bad actors. And so, you know, I ended up being, you know, father confessor, to a lot of people who came to this support group, and said, you know, we're we're new at this, you know, and, and, and so often, and, you know, and it's true, a lot of polyamory organizers that I've known over the decades said the same thing. People walk through that door and they look around and they see a room full of people and a room full is, you know, it might be 10, it might be 50. And they look around and the first thing out of their mouth was, and I thought I was the only one. <laughs> Right. Know, they look around that room and, and they step out of that isolation that we were talking about and realize that they're not freaks of nature, that there are other people that share their views and share their desires and, and want to pursue this. And that changes the paradigm for them. And it certainly right. did for me. And and so I just kept going deeper and broader, both, you know, learning more about it and how to do it right and how to do it well. and helping people along the way. And, you know, like I said, started talking to professional groups. It was like four years after I started that group, I, I, I ended up getting invited to co-present it at the first ASEC meeting I went to. And it was very well received. And I said, well, I guess I can do this on my own. And so I started doing it on my own and that was very well received and high, you know, got high marks. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, I, my, my current partner and I are, are almost 20 years in. Um, we've lived together for 13 years, you know, we, we dated for a while and then we lived close by each other for a while. And, you know, I was in another relationship while I had this relationship and ultimately that relationship, that lady went another way and got involved with another gentleman and, you know, and we stayed friends and I ultimately moved in with my current partner and, and here we are.
2: and And you're still practicing
0: poly you're still practicing polyamory yeah Yeah, that's
2: his lifestyle.
0: yes so i mean you don't don't have to get into details if you don't want to about your partners but um so i so that's so let's talk about your expertise like the love that works and your and your book and get a little Mm -hmm. bit of information on that so that if even someone wants to go through these hacks or exercises and they're not, necess- they don't think that that's even their lifestyle or they don't, never heard of it. So they're just thinking, oh, what, how does, how can love work in a new way at this stage of life? So right. love that works.
1: Sure. Uh, love that the, works the, the, awesome for Awesome. For amazing relations. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, I, I was just wanting to, to know, we talked about it uh, briefly on the phone too, but there is a difference between ethical non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy. Is it two separate things? It is, or it's the same thing. Just, just
1: it's one side of the same coin.
2: One side of the same Uh,
1: coin. Yeah, I mean, in order for non-monogamy to be truly consensual, obviously you must practice ethics. You must do ethics, Mm -hmm. and we can agree on what ethics are. It is honesty. It is not deception. It is not exploitation. It is is doing things in a mindful, tactful kind-hearted way. That's, you know, we can agree on what ethics are. And so in order to have true consent, you had better be behaving ethically, or right. you're probably not getting true yeah. consent if you're lying yeah. concealing and so forth. So some people prefer to emphasize the ethical nature of it as contrasted to cheating, which is unethical. That's a whole nother discussion we could have at another time. And consensual, which again, contrasting to cheating, which right. is presumably non-consensual, right. um, so th- it's it's two ways of saying the same thing. Right. Is it a car or a mobile?
2: Okay, I got you it. Know? Anyway, you were talking about your. Um,
0: your I bo- was asking about yeah. love love that works in the hacks.
1: In the course of all the work I've done with with people in the non-monogamous world you know, I discovered certain core principles that are that are bedwalk principles in the non-monogamous world, but they also have universal applicability.
0: If you're enjoying this episode with an expert, you could check out three other expert interviews on this topic of relationships and sexuality. There is episode nine with Roz Descavo, Sexuality, Identity, and Capacity. Episode 14 with Kitty Shambliss, Loving Without Boundaries and episode 18 with Barbara Corellis Queerness, Inclusion, and an Ecstatic Life.
1: I kind of distilled that into a a way of treating relationships, which I call affirmative intimacy. And there are four pillars of affirmative intimacy. The first is safe space. It's creating an environment where you can actually have the difficult conversations about whatever it is you need to talk about. And, And there's a Process for doing that the second is structured dialogue and that's borrowed from a very very smart guy uh, Harville Hendricks but with my adaptations and additions from another bunch of other smart people and it's how to have a conversation Once you once you set the stage for the conversation it's how to have that conversation effectively Okay, and, and I and I know you folks have worked with or know, uh Tammy Nelson another friend of mine who is an Imago therapist, and that's Harville Hendricks's approach, is the Imago, okay? Uh, I don't hold with everything Hendricks teaches by a long shot, but his communications methodology is cool. So I've adapted that, and that's the second pillar. The third pillar is mindful reason, and that's bringing mindfulness and your conscious mind to bear on what it is you're now conversing about, so that you can process what it is that you're conversing about in an intelligent, non-volatile way being mindful and so forth and that's based on the teachings of albert ellis the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy he called it rational emotive behavioral therapy he and aaron beck co-created it and i corresponded with ellis before he passed away brilliant guy uh, uh, egotistical as hell Um, Loved to use swear words uh, even in his his books but he was also non-monogamous as i found out subsequently uh, but his his uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or mindful mindful i have adapted it into mindful reason and then the last piece of it is differentiation of self that was driven by Murray Bowen at, uh, at Georgetown University a psychiatrist and who developed family systems therapy every marriage and family therapist out there cut his teeth on Murray Bowen's family systems therapy And Dr. David Snarch, who recently passed away, uh, took Bowen's family systems therapy and distilled it into couples therapy and tried to bridge the gap between couples, marriage and family therapy and sex therapy. Another brilliant, brilliant man. Took his insights and worked through that into my approach, my fourth pillar called differentiation of self. So you've set the stage for the conversation. You use the right practices to have the conversation. You use the right mental discipline to process the conversation, and the outcome of that is increased differentiation of self, which gives you the freedom to act in whatever way makes sense. Those are the four pillars of affirmative intimacy.
0: And where's the, the biggest book, struggle? Where's the big, I mean, so, 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 if those are the pillars, where do you feel like you have, where's the biggest learning curve for most people that? Maybe you learn from non-monogamy, but somebody that wants to start approaching it, certainly get the book. I mean, which we, we're, I think that it's helpful for anyone to look at that. So, sure. um, But where would you say to start?
1: Well, I mean, there's no magic. You need all four. Right. A, table, a four-legged table with three legs doesn't work pretty right. well. A <laughs> four-legged table with two legs doesn't work at all. And there's a reason why they're they're they were created in that order but you can you can pick and choose because again you got to meet people where they are and maybe they already have good conversational skills maybe they already have mindfulness maybe they already know how to set the stage for a, a, a non-confrontational conversation okay fine you can skip that chapter but uh, i find most people don't but the toughest part for many people is the is the uh, mindful reason it is stepping away from reactivity Stepping away from what Albert Ellis called masturbation, I must, must do this. Oh, look yes. at
0: that! I like that word.
1: The world, the world must treat me well. My partner must love me unconditionally. I must be successful in all that I do. Blah 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 blah. And and again, we incorporate this this nonsense. And Ellis taught people, it's like, no, where is it written that your partner must love you? Where is it written that you must be upset if your partner looks at somebody else, you know, with a glint right. in their eye, you know, where is it written? Blah, 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 you know, yeah. of course you challenge your, what he called irrational beliefs that really have no basis in ra- in rationality. They just kind of things that are, and he, he started this, the, the whole field of cognitive behavioral therapy is about challenging beliefs that don't serve you well you know it's called the abcd method and you know it's like there's an activating event you see a thing but somebody cuts you off in traffic right then there's a consequence of the activating event you start screaming and swearing and cursing and throwing you know the bird at people and being angry and frustrated and upset and everybody says well okay a the activating event being cut off is caused by or is a res- your your reaction to that is caused by the activating event You know it's natural for you to start swearing and and making obscene gestures and so forth if somebody cuts you off in traffic but they miss the intervening step and the intervening step is your beliefs the me what is your beliefs about being cut off in traffic how dare that sob cut me off the great me (laughs) that was that was inappropriate that's terrible that's disastrous he's going to make me late that terrible blankety blank person and and all these beliefs are the filters through which you see an objective event, and then that produces the explosion. So if you step back and say, wait a minute, what are my filters? What are my beliefs about should I I should never be cut off in traffic? People shouldn't do that. People shouldn't behave that way. That's awful. That's terrible. Who says? I mean, perhaps it would be better if they didn't. But that doesn't justify your irrational response. And it has nothing
0: so to do the with de- understanding of someone else where they're coming from by just saying, we don't really know where that person's coming from. And just like it could happen to me sometime. Like we just have such a judgment that we put there, too.
1: Yeah, And, and, and you don't have to. You can step back and say, wait a minute. I don't have to be upset. I don't have to let that thing upset me. I don't have to believe that that thing is wrong, bad, and should never have happened, and and is is a blight on the face of the universe. So that's and the. Therefore, my anger, yeah, you know, is 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 misplaced. It's it it all it does is is eating me alive. And right. the fact that they right. cut me off, they still cut me off. I haven't changed the objective facts on the ground, but now I've given myself a heart attack over it. And so it's like, wait a minute, step back and dispute that. Is it? You know, yes, it was rude. It was inconsiderate. That's a damn shame. All right. But what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you realistically can do about it. So move on. Okay. So now I'm cool again. Turn up the radio and move on. (laughs) Don't let it destroy you. And that's a very minor, very mundane. So what's the C?
0: That was the belief. And then what's the C? A is the affirmative. The consequence.
1: A, A A is the activating event. Right. The thing that happened. The objectively determinable thing that happened. C is the consequences, the apparent consequences, the having a hissy fit, cursing, shooting the bird, so forth. But B, your beliefs about the activating event are the filter through which you predict your consequences. Got it. And then D, disputing, saying, wait a minute, I don't have to throw a hissy fit. I don't have to curse. I don't have to have road rage. Why should I do that? It's not going to change things. I need to be mindful of the fact that I'm having a hissy fit over something that really doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things. Now, if the person cuts in front of you and crashes into your front end, that escalates matters a bit. But nevertheless, being angry and and cursing and picking a fight and doing road rage helps nothing. It doesn't help the situation. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help the other party either. You need to get a hold of yourself and get a hold of the process. And again, this is a very simple and very mundane example, but it's illustrative of the process. But people have trouble getting their heads around that. The Radio Vagabond. If you like to travel but haven't really been able to too much
2: in recent times, let me do it for you. The ultimate destination for armchair travelers who are looking for inspiration to get out into the real world and let loose their wanderlust. So far, I've been to almost 100 countries, so I'm halfway in my quest to visit every country in the world. Join me, and maybe you'll get some inspiration for your next trip. The Radio Vagabond. Gotta keep moving.
0: Can you please explain the difference between swinging and polyamory?
1: Yeah, There there are three major strains of consensual non-monogamy, and then there's a number of sub strains. One, the one strain is the so called open relationship. And that's usually engaged in more or less individually. It may or may not involve an emotional component. Uh, it may just be, you know, a friend with benefit on the sides, whatever. But it is, it is still conducted consensually. Hey, we, we know we're going to do this. It's okay for us to do this. We're going to do this. Okay, fine. But it tends to be individualized and very compartmentalized. Then there's polyamory where one enters into a relationship that allows for both sexual and also emotional connection outside of the original unit. Um, And so it's like, okay, but again, consensual, we, we, we know we are open to the idea of having both physical and emotional connections to other people. And we will sometimes do it together and sometimes do it individually. Okay, fine. You know, that's, that's much more fluid. And the third major strain is what you would characterize as swinging or the lifestyle. That is typically couple-centric. Two people who are in some kind of a partnered relationship go together to engage in sexual activities with other people. They may engage with other couples or they may engage with other individuals, but it is primarily about sexual gratification. The formal canon is to avoid emotional entanglement. The practical reality is a lot of people who practice what they call swinging and the lifestyle have very close friendships, they call them, that if you analyze them from a, a, a neutral perspective would look a lot like polyamory. They go to, you know, vacation together, they raise each other's kids together, go to the high school plays together. They do a lot of things that look polyamorous. They don't just get together in the swing club and have sex and I don't want to know your name. There are
2: some of those, too. S- there are some of those. That's
1: slice, A slice of those, about 15% are the, you know, just do it and be, be done with it. But the rest of the other 85% fall on a a, a spectrum of people who do want to have some measure. of You know, they, they may say, if you look in the person, they may say, friends first. Right. You
2: know, uh, but it's
0: still whatever, together, although that causes... Causes some possibility for, and we've met swingers that ended up marrying the other partner because they were friends with, I mean, not just, it happens. And right. So that happens and love can enter the picture at times we'd least expect it. I assume. You can't, you know,
1: the swingers, the swingers pride themselves. They think on having this, this ironclad safety net for, uh, for couples to engage in, in sexual non-exclusivity. And, Guess what? When you're dealing with people, it's messy and there's no such thing as an ironclad safety net because the heart goes where it will. So it's better to acknowledge that going in. It's like all right, our purpose here is to enjoy sexual variety. But if we happen to connect with somebody, we're going to have to process what that means to us. And-, and some people process that and they leave the swing scene altogether. They can't handle it. Right. And, and other people process it and they, and they say, OK, this is a, this is our new boundary. And, and some people, you know, we had a lot of ex, ex-swingers come into polyamory because they, they wanted the connection. They couldn't it, find it in the, in the community where they, where they were.
2: And uh, the, the, the subject of kink is a very vast spectrum. Where would that fall yes. in those three relationships? Many is, people... Is it four or is it the form of those three?
1: It's one of those subject species. Many people in the kink community are also non-exclusive. They may have play partners, they call them, where they will engage in activities with people who are not their legal spouse. They may be emotionally monogamous and not sexually monogamous. They may be both sexually and emotionally non-monogamous. They can be any of those things because kink is more about what it is you do, the practices in which you engage sexually or you know again we had this conversation earlier some people insist that kink is not sexual at all and you won't convince them otherwise because for them it's not for them it's about the the mental stimulation or whatever it is and they don't perceive Mastery that as being or sexual or it, right
0: the ma- right
1: you no know? but but again somebody who was looking at it from a purely neutral standpoint would would probably see that there is at least some sexual overtone or sexual gratification associated with it now the 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 kink world is very very divided. It has a lot of different facets. And, you know, the, the gay male leather and kink world is different from the heterosexual leather and kink world is different from the lesbian kink and leather world and fetish world. Uh, There's lots of other sub genres within that world. Kink is more about the mode of expression. It is, it doesn't fall neatly into those lines that the non-monogamy world, uh, those three major divisions that I described for you, because people can be kinky and exclusive. They can be kinky and non-exclusive. They can be kinky and emotionally exclusive, but not sexually exclusive, and vice versa. Uh, it's, it's a whole different uh, array of behaviors, attitudes, norms, lifestyles, and so forth. There's a substantial overlap, but it is, it is a different sort of thing.
2: So if we have a, a couple that is listening to us right now, that want to know more about kink, what is it all about, that they've been really isolated from it uh, for a long time, uh, rather than, let's not talk about monogamy or non-monogamy. How do they explore kink or whatever that is? I mean, how, how would you suggest to a new couple to do that?
1: Do not read Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a crock. <laughs> that, that, step number one, it's a crock. Uh, there are a number of, of good good, well-written books that they could read, and you know, you go to Amazon and, and look around. But there are a number of really good ones: SM101, uh, "Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns." Uh, there's a lot of others. Screw uh, the, the largest. Screw order, the
2: roses, send, send me, me the me thorns. Thorn.
1: <laughs> thorn. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh You know, and so there. You know, you, you find any one of those, and then see the also recommended stuff. Um, but there's there's some good stuff there. The largest online community is called FetLife, and you can get an anonymous profile there, and you can do what I did with Loving More all those years ago. Start talking to people, and uh, and then in many many major localities, you know, not so much out in the middle of the, the desert prairie whatever, but in most major cities, there are multiple organizations that offer what they call munches, which are non-sexual, low low threat come and have coffee with a group of people. And again, you get the opportunity to talk to people who are actually experiencing it and and say, hey, you know, I think I might be into this. This is what I think. How does that sound? And begin to develop that peer conversation with people who are actually doing it and learn how to do it and how to do it safely and how to do it well. Right. That community, you know, kind of has a copyright on the use of consent.
0: I was about to say that,
1: right? Exactly. They they kind of invented that concept. One of my favorite books that I recommend highly is called Opening Up by Tristan Terramino. And the thing I love about opening up in Tristan's book, and and I'm in there, by the way, and anonymized, suitably anonymized, but I'm in there, my relationship, but that's not why I recommend it. The the beauty of, of opening up is that Tristan talks about transitioning into all of these different forms of open relationships. She talks about how to do the kink open relationship. She talks about how to do polyamorous open relationships. She talks about how to do swinging open relationship. She talks about how to do open, open relationships, no, no labels, you know, generic open relationships uh, and does a very good job of it. Lots of, lots of uh, vignettes and case study kinds of things, but a very easy read. It is my go-to book for somebody who's just got a toe in the water and wants to learn more about their options. Uh, It's getting a little dated, been around for a while. You know, the other canonical book that everybody loves to recommend is The Ethical Slut. I like The Ethical Slut. I like the first edition better than I like the second edition or the third edition. The thing about The Ethical Slut is it's it's lesbian and kink centered and it's very what I call left coasty. You know, it's about the San Francisco open relationship kink lesbian sex scene of the 80s, 90s and so for some people it'll be a little jarring it's still a good introduction you know but you have to contextualize it a bit now maybe the the later editions are better than the first but but there is something to think about there
0: and then there's designer relationships i don't have that author but i know that's supposed to have been recommended
1: and uh, yeah mark michaels and patricia johnson uh again folks i know good people um and uh you know that's that's a good book and, and again it's not about exclusively about open relationships it's about how to to transform whatever relationship you're in into one that fits you well uh they borrowed the term from my good friend ken haslam who, who, who called polyamorous relationships designer relationships and mark and patricia liked it so much they, they titled their book after it it's a great you know, name good stuff and they, they cite some of my research in that book
2: that's wonderful i think that the audience will be delighted to see that there is some a lot of resources that can uh, direct them and let them understand and learn about the kink world and also ethical non-monogamy in your in your um, experience in your practice as a as a coach have you encountered that mostly people that have you seen are in the open empty stage and what was the major problem that they had if you uh, had to consult to those people did you have a specific problem that they had that kind of reoccurred in many couples?
1: You know, there's, there's a, a short laundry list of issues that are recurrent in relationships. And they generally get worse or more salient the longer the relationship lasts. Some people tend to find ways to patch up and paper over these things. Some things go away after time. Again, for people in a certain age group, the problems with you know struggling over child rearing practices kind of goes away when the kids go off to college. You don't have those fights anymore. Um, but there are other things that are that are perennial: sexuality, intimacy, perennial. Everybody argues about sex: not enough, wrong kind, wrong person, whatever. Money. People argue about money. Another one of the ones that goes away is in-laws usually, unless they're living with you or creating a, a caregiver situation where you've got to deal with that. You know, the so-called sandwich generation. We have adult children or nearly adult children and we have parents who are in their 80s and 90s and we're stuck in the middle trying to, to manage both of those. Uh, and, and that can be very stressful. It can put stress on your relationship. Uh, so that's something that people in this, in this bucket uh, have to have to find ways to to navigate those right. waters. Boomerang kids that you know are near adult or are adult, but can't you know they they fail to to fledge, and they come back to the nest, and that creates issues. Do you charge junior rent? Does junior do any work around the house to uh,
2: justify their uh, living? Yeah.
1: Yeah, to earn her keep. Uh, you know that sort of thing. So I mean, these are these are perennial relationship issues that manifest themselves throughout the, the life course
2: right uh, and, and uh, specifically in the empty nester open nester stage of acts three that's what i was looking yeah, for. yeah.
0: Well, that's that's yeah, just it's just magnified yeah. when the kids leave right. i would think and that's what we were talking about is that sometimes things get covered up and so we don't notice it until all of a sudden there's time to notice it
1: <laughs> right yeah i mean you know too many people i mean the helicopter parents they focus on their children and making sure they get into the best schools even if they have to bribe somebody you know to get them into the best schools and you know so you raise your children and you hopefully do a good job of it and all of a sudden all right the children are raised they're 22 23 24 years old and you're 45 50 55 years old and you're sitting at the breakfast table looking across the table at somebody that you pledged undying fidelity and I want to spend the rest of my life till with do you. It
2: till death do us apart, apart
1: yeah. death do us apart, across that table. And you realize that you haven't had a conversation about anything that wasn't purely mechanical or pertaining to the children in 30 years. And now what are we going to do? What are we going right. to do for the next 30 years of our life? Some right. people continue to live separate. You know, they live apart together. Uh, they have separate they, lives. They, live they maintain together. a common domicile. Um other people, you know, live together apart. They maintain separate domiciles. They may even be bi coastal. You know, right. hey, I live in New York and you live in Los Angeles and you're happy in Los Angeles and I'm happy in New York and we get together once one weekend a month and we're and we're great at that, and that works for us. Whatever it is. But it's a matter of figure that out. Is that is that what's gonna work for you? But yeah, it's 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 that. Oh, my God, you know, I we argued every year about what whose house we're going to spend the holidays at. And now they're gone. And now what do we do? We don't have our perennial holiday argument anymore. But you know what? I never liked the holidays much anyway. You know, I don't want to celebrate. I don't want to put up the decorations this year. But a lot of these things are really surrogates for what's really bothering us. It's socially acceptable to argue about who did the dishes, or it's socially acceptable to argue about taking out the trash, or it's socially acceptable to argue about who paid the bills or or some of these, these mundanities. But really what's underneath that, those prickly little issues that we argue and fight about, there's a lot more in-depth, heart-centered things that are wrong or or don't feel right to us, but we don't dare bring those out. John Gottman, who's one of the most, one of the premier couples researchers in the world said, you know, there's a certain percentage of disputes that couples have that are simply irreconcilable. Just at the end of the day, you're never going to get to agreement on 10 things and wisdom lies in identifying those 10 things and just taking them off the table because they're not going to change. You're never, ever, 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 ever going to resolve them. And if you fight about them for 50 years, you've just wasted a big chunk of 50 years of your life. Right. Wow. So the wisdom lies in, in figuring out what those 10 irreconcilable things are and, and saying, you know, these are things we just have to agree to disagree.
2: And it's good to do it before the wedding. <laughs>
1: good. Well, it's good, to, it's good to
0: do it throughout the journey if if you yeah, can figure it out. It out.
1: Yeah, they don't show up, perhaps, until until right. after the kids have left. Right. Or until mother-in-law has moved in or until... You know, you've gotten that final promotion and All now right. you're making six, you know, whatever that thing is that, that is the triggering event. But now it's like, okay, you know, I I've always lived thriftily and now I've won the lottery. Or grandpa died and left me a million dollars. So now I don't have to live thriftily anymore. And it's like, but my partner still yells at me every time I spend an extra five dollars on a latte at Starbucks because they can't leave that thrifty mindset. What's underneath that is a control issue. I see. It's now you're independent of me. Now you can go buy that latte without having to ask me about it, without having to think about what I think about spending that money anymore. And that scares me.
0: I think That's the essence of I think the power. essence of this stage is that permission to allow each other that differentiation or individuality. And yes, so you've really helped us exactly. really bring that to a to in so many specific ways I really appreciate it really this has helped been us. Uh,
2: an incredible incredible insight to our audience I think that you have shaded uh, um, a lot of uh, ideas on relationship how to establish it how to start talking uh, the uh, affirm- affirmation of intimacy is very important and I'm sure we're going to love to have you again on specific subjects
0: Thank you so much, Jim. Really, this was such a wonderful interview, and we so appreciate your time
1: with us.
2: Uh, Jim, can you just tell us how the audience can get a hold of you?
1: My website is uh, www.affirmativeintimacy.com. All one word.
2: Affirmativeintimacy.com.
0: Yeah, it'll be in our podcast notes, too, if they want to look it up. But affirmativeintimacy.com, there'll be a link that we could put in there and to your book, too.
1: I was going to say, if they're interested in the book, the book has a separate uh, link it's Ltw the book. love that works Ltwthebook.com
2: Ltw the
0: com.
1: okay yep they can get that straight from me that way um, or they can go to Amazon and all the usual you know suspects and, and, and buy it there. Um, and then if, if people are interested in non-monogamy and want to learn some more about it, I have some some uh, CD self-paced trainings on that that they can purchase. And my, my recommended book list, which I'm going to be updating again soon because there's some new titles out that I want to also recommend. And that's affirmativeintimacy.com slash And I'm on Facebook, and I don't tweet much anymore. It's gotten to be a zoo, but I am available on Facebook. It's Facebook slash affirmative intimacy.
0: Affirmative intimacy. Such that's such a strong see title. So the Thank you. I will remember see that
1: one. Yeah. See a theme in that? Yeah. um so yeah i would love, love to have anybody interested you know reach out to me and uh, i can add you to my mailing yeah. list and, and give you my periodic insights and thoughts and opportunities to learn more
2: perfect fabulous it's been a pleasure jim thank you very much for your time and your insights
1: have a great evening oh, happy to do it thank you same to you guys
0: that was such an excellent reinforcement of the things we know to learn to grow in and how hard that is sometimes to make sure we communicate and don't create irrational things out of nothing and create what you must do so i make you i don't want you to make me masturbate you can't tell me what to do <laughs> yeah.
2: well you know we, sp- we he has so much information to give and that's why we spent almost an hour that's one of our longest interviews talking to an expert with knowledge and understanding and he really walk the walk and talk the talk and he understand exactly what relationship he's in and exactly what he's going toward so and i like the a b c d activation of the event the beliefs filter that we judge things through the consequence and then disputing hey i don't need to be feel that way so I like the perspective that he put on that, and especially when it's come to down to relationship.
0: And self-actualization is a process, and, and you being or our partners being part of that is what creates a richer life. So thank you for that amazing interview.
2: Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. I mean, I'm still digesting it, and I dev- definitely have to go and listen to it again. But regardless of that, there are plenty of information regarding Jim's books, on our website, on our resource center, and talking about our website, please visit theopennesters.com. That The Open n double in the middle, and S at the end.
0: And please take a look at our new tab for me, for Tessa, because we're offering all kinds of events and public speaking and the coaching that I've been doing If you're interested in that, take a look at our website there and please join us. If you have any comments and want to be part of a closed community on our Facebook group, just go to The Open Nesters and ask to join our closed community.
2: Until next time, this is Amir.
0: And I'm Tessa.
2: And we will see you on the radio. Ciao.